Malachi, let's talk about the historical situation first. In 444, should be a relatively easy date to remember, is uh, Nehemiah and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. About this time is the temple completed and the Levitical worship resumed. It's about the time of the story of Esther, if you remember and are familiar with that story. It's the time of Ezra's ministry, which we talked about last week in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the beginning of that, what the, the portion of history that Ezra covers takes place here. Nehemiah leads a group of Jews back to Israel and begins rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah's gone a short time, but then returns. And I refer you to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which you should read in something. <laughs> a lot of value there. There are some textual arguments we can make for Malachi being written in that little window of time when Nehemiah was gone from Jerusalem, around 433, which doesn't matter, but just the idea that Malachi's ministry is in this window when Nehemiah is not present to lead the people in those efforts. So you'll get a lot of overlap. You can hold up the book of Nehemiah, especially chapter 13 of Nehemiah, and you can hold up Malachi kind of side by side, and you can see that they're dealing with the same types of issues. And so it's certainly not, not just the same types of issues, the same issues by the same people at the same times. And so it's certainly possible and reasonable, given those other clues, that Malachi is kind of the voice of the Lord for the people on these same issues in Nehemiah's temporary absence, because this is a message that the people have to hear again and again and again. And aren't you so thankful that we've come so far that we don't have to be told the same things by God again and again and again, <laughs> like those people of old, those stubborn, ignorant rebels. Uh, yeah. What are the issues of this? What, what are the problems that are being addressed and brought up? We'll talk about from chapter one, the behavior of the priests. That continues to be a problem that God's shepherds do not shepherd the sheep faithfully. We'll talk about the neglect of contributions, people's unwillingness to financially support the ministry, not just out of their abundance, but the part that God requires, the, the first fruits, the tithes that they were supposed to bring to the Lord. Remember, they had, you know, pastors have to get paid, and so churches have to either get enough contributions to pay the pastors in the building, or the pastor has to make money somewhere else. And remember in the Old Testament, they had an entire tribe that was pastors, that was the priestly class. They had the, you read in the Psalms about the musicians of the temple courts. All these people had important roles to play that were required in God's economy for worship and, and for Levitical worship. And so it had to be paid for. And God set up the system whereby they would be provided for. And that system was the first fruits, the tithes that the people would bring into the storehouse. And they didn't want to do it. And aren't you so glad that we're not like those rebellious pagans, but that God gives us always generous hearts. <laughs> Wait a minute, what's going on here? 
Another issue, Malachi 2, will be intermarriage with foreign women, issues that we've heard again. That's what always creeps idolatry, tr- uh, pro- idolatry proper. All sins ultimately boil down to idolatry. But when you talk about idolatry proper, you're actually talking about the worship of false gods. And in the Bible, when you find a mass of Israelites worshiping false gods, it started with intermarriage. It started because they saw and took for themselves foreign wives, that phrase, and then those women said, well, I'm worshiping my God in my house. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. You, you be you. Oh, that, that God seems pretty cool. All right, we'll do whatever, right? Because that's about as useful as husbands are in general. By and large, the issues that are being brought up in Malachi are the same things we've been hearing about for three or four books now. The people get apathetic toward God. They get selfish toward themselves. They're mad at God because he doesn't give them what they want. And they say, oh God, why don't we have what we want? And God sends prophets to say, you don't pay any attention to me. You don't do the things I've commanded. You're not obedient. You're selfish. All right. Malachi's written to the second generation of exiles. This is the second to third, somewhere in between that second to third generation after the temple has been rebuilt. So the temple's completed now. Now they're working on walls. They have other projects. Uh, But once again, the same thing happens. The people get lax in their attitude toward worship and toward God. God does not bless them because they are not living anywhere remotely consistently with God's commands. And they get discouraged that God isn't blessing them. Aren't you so glad that we don't go through that path? We're mad, upset, discouraged that things aren't going the way we want them to go. But what, where we often don't begin is by looking at our own walk with Christ in obedience to figure out whether or not this is a walk that even could be blessed. Uh, that doesn't mean it always will be, but it's a good place to start, uh, especially in light of discouragement. Malachi's style uses what's called the disputation method. This is where a statement or accusation is made, and then there's an objection raised to that statement in the form of a question, and the bulk of the teaching is the response to the objection. So Malachi or God will say something. Malachi will speak on behalf of the people or on behalf of a hypothetical objector to say, but wait, what about, or but wait, that doesn't, And then the bulk of Malachi's teaching comes in responding to that either real or hypothetical objection. That's called the disputation method. Why might he do that? What's the point of trying to use that style? It's effective for one. I mean, if you you lay these uh, objections out up front so the person doesn't get to the, oh yeah, you're not answering this yeah, kind of. Yeah, and it kind of breaks through to them. It breaks through the apathy or the resistance by resistance by getting right at the heart of the issue. It's 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 very fair, but it also teaches humility because God makes these statements, and then we kind of act like, well, I have an objection to that, or I know better in the back of my mind. But God said it, so I'm not going to argue with it. I'm not. Gonna, these people around me believe it, so I'm not going to raise the issue. I'm just going to... But I know in the back of my mind that there's this real doubt or this real thing 
that undoes what God has said or negates it. And the disputation method is way more honest than that, than bringing about humility and saying, no, no, actually, God has an answer for that. Why don't you say it? Why don't you say it out loud? Why don't you ask it? And see what the answer is. Because if there is no answer, that's a real problem. So it, it breaks through the apathy. It teaches humility. It's an honest kind of approach. It's not a trick. It's not, it's, it's, it's not like Malachi is putting names on this. You know, Andrew asked me this stupid question, and then I tore him up with my great answer. It's just, no, here's a question or an accusation that people would make in response to what God has said. And that's, that's good. That's a, that's a useful way to approach it. It was pretty common. And, I mean, I, I think the Summa, the Aquinas' Summa is written in that way. Uh, but you will say to me, you see Paul do it a million times. Like, you walk through Romans and count the number of times where Paul says something to the effect of, but what? And then asks a hypothetical question. And this hypothetical objector concept is, is a good form of teaching. All right, let's talk about the message of Malachi, which comes through these oracles. The message itself is pretty simple. God will judge those who are lax in their attitude toward him. God will judge those who are lax in their attitudes toward him. So let's start, Malachi starts, with an introductory appeal. Uh, Andrew, will you read chapter 1, 1 through 5? Yep. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the introduction begins with this appeal to God's love for Israel. I have loved you. And then right away you hear this, this method. How have you loved us? We're discouraged. We can't get these walls built. It doesn't look like we're successful right now. We were in exile just a couple generations ago. This is all bad. How have you loved us? And the response is, don't, don't you remember Jacob and Esau? Don't you remember a line of blessing? and a line of curse. And it's not just about those two individuals. It's about a line of blessing and a line of curse. It's about a line of faithfulness that leads to blessing and a line of disobedience and rebellion that leads to curse. And God is saying, what, what are you talking about? How have I loved you? Let's go back. Let's go way back. You want to walk through these two lines and see the way that it worked. And that's what this whole thing is going to be about. It's going to be about Israel's lament that things aren't going well for them and God saying of course things will go well for my remnant I've made promises if things are not going well for you this could be a 
a time of trouble where I'm talked about that in other prophets where God is using conflict and trial and difficulty in the world to accomplish his purposes nonetheless or it could be you're on the wrong side of the Jacob Esau line back to last week's book about repentance that's all it takes to put yourself on the right side of the covenantal line is repentance and so God's kind of hey through Malachi you may want to evaluate where you're at in that then he goes into oracles against the priests. So this begins in verse 6 and goes all the way through 2-9. Justin, would you read 1-6 to 2-9? Son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were among you who would shut out, who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame and sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And you, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality to your instruction. All right, the opening statement. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Where is my honor? 
So God is asking a question of the priests. Why do you despise my name? It's an accusation. You are dishonoring my name. And then they object. How have we despised your name? And he goes into a fair amount of detail. <laughs> what were some of the things that jumped out to you present in the priest's behaviors there in chapter 1? Not giving the best sacrifice? Yeah. Uh, bringing the lame animals. Bringing the... the, the blind. Blind, the, the damaged food. The, you know, ha you're having the king of the universe over for dinner and you get the two-day-old clearance meat at Kroger and take your chances. <laughs> and I think this, the accusation against the priest here is really valuable for us to think about because the mechanics of what they were doing are not particularly applicable to us today. We don't have to bring sheep <laughs> to the altar. But the heart, what was communicated about their own hearts by what they were doing is perfectly relevant for us today. I'm always reminded of, I think it's, it, it's definitely a Charlie Brown special. I think it's the Christmas one where Lucy's arguing with Schroeder and she says, why is Beethoven such a big deal? He's not so great. And what the priests are saying to God by their actions and saying to the people by their actions. God's not so great. God doesn't deserve the best. God deserves whatever. Whatever you show up with, it's fine. And that attitude is pervasive in the modern church. It is, it is an epidemic in the modern church that God is just so tickled pink that you would show up to worship him at all. He doesn't care how you do it. He doesn't care what your attitude towards your clothes is. Not Notice I didn't say what your clothes are. I said what your attitude toward your clothes are. What your attitude toward your posture is. Because if the attitude is the same as these priests, this is what God deserves. Not much. He's not so great. It's no different than bringing the lame animal. And they also say, what a weariness this is. Like, oh, it's just... Yeah, I'm not so happy to be here. Yeah. Right. Just too oh, much wait, you weren't talking about me? The conviction for me on that one is, like my kids, I take them on a great vacation, and they'll melt down because they can't go to the dollar store and get this bottle of like we've done all these great things and I'm like I'm not I'm not <laughs> like the Lord's giving me everything yep. and the thought of having to give him just a little bit more is really really <laughs> yeah ingratitude entitlement quickly take hold of the heart <laughs> quickly take hold of the heart the grown up heart as well as the child heart and if you think God is who he says he is and if you are conscious of that fact as you approach worship, no matter what we decide about mechanics, how we dress, what our posture is, what we do and don't do in worship, set aside 
the outcome for a minute. If God is who he says he is, and we remind ourselves of that fact and are cognizant of it as we approach him in worship, can't we all agree it will affect how we worship? And it will change our approach of God from what we would have done naturally. I, I think we all should be able to agree on that. That what our, the way our heart wants to approach God, not being thoughtful about who God is, is not very God-focused. It's not, God is great. It's, why is Beethoven so great? He's not so great. He's, and these people are even, what have you done for me lately? Wait, late? Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. What have I done for you? What? What are we talking about? And the priests are not only living this out with their own lives, but they're demonstrating it to the people. And the priests are teaching the people, God doesn't matter very much. God is not so great. When you mentioned the modern church, it seems like a lot of um, this type of behavior is present, but I'm just wondering if it's like the same in the modern church as it's being described here in Malachi, because in the modern church, it's like, okay, we've got the gospel, and like that's where it starts and ends, you know? They don't really go into the into any of this. Yeah, I just mean the attitude is the same. The idea that we get to worship God on our terms as if God should be more pleased with us than we are with him. That's the attitude with which many people approach God. And in the modern church, it's a pendulum swing, okay? It's not, the, the reason why I think this is particularly prevalent in the modern church is because we're reacting against, go back a couple generations, where there was the formality of worship without the heart. It was the rending of the garments, but not the rending of the heart. And that's a real problem. And so generations grew up watching their parents or their parents' age people go to church and dress up for church and sing out of hymnals and act out all of the motions of church and then come home and live godless lives. And that generation said, no, that's phony. The heart is what matters. They were right in their diagnosis. But then they swing the pendulum way the other way. And it's only the heart that matters. And the heart and the externals have nothing to do with one another. So as long as you're sincere, God doesn't care what you do. Well, show me that in the Bible. The guy who tried to dive down and grab the Ark of the Covenant from hitting the ground was pretty sincere right before he got burnt up. God cares deeply what you do and deeply why you do it. And we swing the pendulum from one to the other. It doesn't matter what we do as long as we're sincere. Or, no, no, as long as you check off the boxes of doing the right things, you're fine. And the prophets address both of these issues. Which is great, because modern church ping-pongs back between them. I think the online worship has contributed a lot to that. Right? Uh, the online worship is the result of that, is yeah, what I would say. Yeah, that's a good is the, the church that already felt like I have everything I need with Christ independent of the church and apart from the church and apart from the body of Christ. People that already believe that have no problem saying I'm never stepping back in a church building again. Yeah, it's the it's the and symptom. It is then be, yeah, symptom. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes, you know, um, 
it's so much easier about me. It's just about me, my comfort, right? I don't have to get up and get dressed. I can just it's the, there. it's the, you know, there's no effort. Yeah, I'll give a very practical example of, of how delicately you have to talk about these situations and think about them. Is there anything wrong necessarily, just automatically, objectively? Is there anything wrong with a church having an early service? in addition to a 10, 11, whatever o'clock service. No. The Bible does not prescribe a time. Why are maniacs like me so dead set against early services? Because of the temptation they create in people to approach worship as, man, I got my church responsibility out of the way by 9.30. Look at how much day I have left in my day. And it's not your day. It's the Lord's day. And I won't tell you what to do with your day, but I will fight you tooth and nail that it is not your day. It is the Lord's day. He gave you six. He claimed one for himself. He's been very clear about that. I am not happy with the guys who try to micromanage every activity you do on the Lord's day. I don't want to be in that business, but I absolutely want to be in the business of it's not your day. And there we are as the child again, who's been given all these other things. Yeah. How dare you ask for this day? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the six you gave me isn't enough. Well, five of those I got to work. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you only have to work five of them? I got to get a job like that. Yeah. Like, as a, as a, as a sheep, we all, we're all sheep. We all need leaders. We need to be looking to those who are imitatable, hopefully, of Christ. Like, what should our prayer be for, for priests or the elders or the pastors? Because your wayward heart doesn't, it doesn't, I don't say it doesn't. It has make, downstream consequences. It does, yeah. but I can't blame it all on you. You can't, but, I mean, that's the. So I guess what should I pray for our leaders? Yeah, that's you know? the bugaboo of leadership, though, that a lot of leaders don't want to wrap their heads around. But there's a reason we'll be judged more harshly. Right. If you don't want to be judged more harshly, don't be a leader in the church. Because your teaching and behavior does have more downstream consequences. You, you all are essential in one another's lives for iron sharpening iron and for encouragement and strengthening and speaking truth and praying. And all of that is true. But the downstream consequences of your rebellion are not as significant as the four elders of this church. And that's why we'll be judged more harshly. So pray that we would be faithful to our calling. Pray that we would hear the beginning of Malachi 2 here, where God calls the priests back to their responsibility to teach the law. That's what he calls them back to, teach the law. If what our elders needed was to read Psalm 19, 119 every day, then we should read Psalm 119 every day to remember that what the people of God need is not our cleverness, it's not our programs. They need the, the word of the Lord. And anything we do that denies the value, the truth, the supremacy of that word, we got to quit doing in our own lives and as we approach you as, as sheep. Yeah, that, that leadership thing matters. I mean, Malachi even says here, if the priests don't care, the people are not going to care. He promises a curse on these priests if they don't stop this violation of the covenant some of this curse he says has already come so the people are grumbling that they're not having success and the lord here says yeah some of that's on you priests some of that is my curse on you for your violation of the covenant 
and and your unfaithfulness, and then he calls them back to be uh, to their responsibility to teach the law. John, get ready. <laughs> Two ten. You're going through chapter four. Goodness. <laughs> Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord your, with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Stop there for a minute. Let me give you a break. And let's take those first two points real quick. Before he gets into the next one. He's, these are the oracles against the people. And... He just made the point with the priests that when the religious leaders do not fulfill the demands of their calling, moral decline will set in among the people. Why? I was just criticizing the hearts of the people in the modern church. Why are the people's hearts in the modern church generally so wayward? Because their leaders are worse. Because their leaders are worse. They mislead them. They do not lead them into truth. They do not lead them back to the scriptures. They either preach lawlessness, that idea that God doesn't care about any of this as long as you're sincere, or even worse and even more common, they pile up heavy loads and place them on people's backs and they, they proclaim grace, but what they're actually doing to people is law and this heavy, ridiculous law of expectations and how people are supposed to think and feel and act that is not from God's words, but it's from some other cultural norm or, or personal preference. And both lead people astray. And that's what God's saying to the people here, is the people are being faithless. So the first section he read there, uh, verses 10 through 16, he listed several things. Faithlessness through interfaith marriage. That led to the profaning of the sanctuary when these idolaters and the idolatrous practice happen on the Lord's day in the temple of God, that is an abomination. And then verse 13 through 16 talks about the faithlessness that's happening through <coughs> divorce. And this is, for those of you who've ever studied this text, uh, this is one of the most difficult passages in Hebrew <laughs> in the Old Testament. And it's this Malachi 2.16 
the, the NIV says, I hate divorce and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as his garment. The New King James says, Yahweh says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. That means something totally different. The ESV says, for the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. The, it's just all over the map. We know it's about divorce and about violence and Yahweh doesn't like something here. And it's just a very complicated passage in Hebrew. This is one of these tough times for me because very often I will say to you guys, I studied the passage. I understand why people disagree. I understand the complexity of it. I don't know for certain what the answer is, but I kind of lean this way instead of that way. I feel very strongly about this one because I think the context makes it very clear how the verbs are supposed to be uh, conjugated. I know we're all excited about conjugating verbs. <laughs> um, the, the structure, and it's the two verses back to back, that uh, 16 and 17, that make it clear what's happening here. There are two aspects of the men's behavior toward their wives that are making God angry, that are, that are treacherous toward his covenant. One of them is this sending forth, putting away term. It's the, it's the, uh, the word translated divorce, but it's the, it's the, it's the put away. It's the disregard, the covenant, Old Testament word. It's the opposite of Genesis 2.24 that says a man shall cleave to his wife. This is a man putting away, uncleaving from his wife. And that's why they translate it uh, divorce. But that's not what, it doesn't seem to me that that's what Malachi is talking about. He's talking about sexual unfaithfulness. He's talking about adultery. He's talking about the opposite of cleaving and becoming one flesh is putting away. And it's this act of violence toward your wife when you are sexually unfaithful because you are separating what God has joined together and no man is supposed to rend asunder, not just in the, the legal divorce, but in the adultery, in the putting away, you're, you're, you're breaking the one flesh. And so to send her Forth, to send her away, the word that's divorced, where she's supposed to go. She's in covenant with you and one flesh with you. And you commit this act of treachery and violence of ripping that apart and sending her away? Where? And that's why the Lord hates that so much. Uh, as, as one guy I read said, if a husband were to send forth his wife, to whom would she go? And, and that's why it's called covering with violence. The, the word garment is a word that is used often in the ancient Near East as a metaphor for wife. You hear this in the Bible sometimes when you talk about her adorning him with glory, clothing him. She is the clothing of his glory. A man is not great because he is great. A man is great because his wife is the glory of their marriage. And, and th that metaphor is what's present here. And so Job 41 talks about this, just for the record. <laughs> Isaiah 63 talks about this. Um, and so the violence is this thing that she is covenantally giving to him, which is the whole package of marriage. He is ripping off and putting asunder. It's an it's a absolute mess. <laughs> and God is weary by it. He hates it. If marriage is supposed to be a picture 
of the Lord's covenantal union with his people, then when we in our marriages rip them apart, don't just focus on the divorce part. When we unadorn our wives, when we, when we violate the one flesh relationship, when we treat her as though she is not our glory, it's a violence, it's an act of violence to the marriage covenant. And it renders both adultery and divorce render the marriage covenant ineffective because one of God's primary purposes in marriage is the procreation of godly children. It's the expansion of the covenant and both adultery and divorce ruin that. They undo, in a sense, what God has created the covenant to do. So I think this is an incredibly powerful accusation, an important one for marriages in the kingdom of God, and I don't think it's so narrowly focused on the idea that God hates signing divorce papers. It is really about the nature of that covenant and the violence that can be done against it. Was that yeah. actually happening, or was this the, was it more of a metaphor of why it's written? It was actually happening. Okay. This is why when you get to the New Testament and the Pharisees, they already have all of these man-made laws and restrictions in place about how to get a divorce and what the paperwork is and that we get the process right. And the, it's because it was a regular <laughs> occurrence in the life of Israel. All right. Uh, let's pick back up. Pick up where you were. Go to chapter 4, verse 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the feuds of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Let me stop you there again. So two issues have come up in the in the section John just read. The first was the coming judgment as purification and sort of this problem of retribution where God says, I am going to bring about justice in the world. And the response is, no, you're not. You're not carrying out justice in the world. You're treating good people like us as if they're evil. We're, we're not being blessed. And God says, I'm going to come. <clears throat> My coming will be prepared by the messenger of the covenant. That language was in there, uh, 217 and, and following. I'll come as a refiner's fire. It's this nice, gentle reminder that if God is going to come in judgment against unrighteousness, before you tell God that he better come right now, you better make sure that you're on the right side of the repentance continuum. Right? God, I want you to bring justice against wickedness. Well, I mean, not against my wickedness so much as these other people's wickedness. And when God comes in judgment, he's going to come in judgment. So let's make sure that we are uh, repenting and, and following him carefully. And then the second example, starting in chapter 3, verse 6, is the robbing God by not bringing the tithes and the offerings. And as we talked about before, it shows their attitude toward God. He's not worth it. And in a very practical sense, worship doesn't matter very much. The worship can't happen without the money. You, you don't have the sacrifices. You don't have the oil for the lamps. You don't have the musicians. The, the priests die of starvation. You can't have the worship without the money. And when they say, we won't give the money, what they're saying is, worship isn't worth it. Worship doesn't matter very much. And so it's the attitude of the heart that's the issue here. The tithe means a tenth, and that has been used all the way back since Genesis 14, Genesis 28, Leviticus 27 talks about a tenth of all produce is holy to the Lord. It's in Numbers 18 says the tithe is intended for the Levites, like we just discussed. The word offerings is a more general term. Uh, it can refer to the offerings that you bring above that into the sanctuary. It may specifically here refer to the contributions that, that were uh, needed to rebuild Jerusalem, the way that the contributions were needed to rebuild the tabernacle in Exodus 25, and the same word is used there. Kind of, we have a, we, have, we need, I need a capital campaign because we've got a big project to do, and your tithes don't go to that. They go to the ministry, we need this extra to do this other thing the Lord's called us to do. And because they won't give, they're under God's curse. And if they will give, they'll be blessed. And they'll be blessed far more than they expect. What do we take away from that? Uh, how do we apply that in a New Testament context? Well, most important is that there is a relationship between our giving and our relationship to the Lord. Our giving, our willingness to give, what we give, says something about our relationship to the Lord and how we feel about worship. The New Testament does not carry forward a requirement of a tithe, a 10%. I, I, I don't see that anywhere. I don't agree with people who say that that is a requirement. But I will say this. In the Old Testament, the God who never changes did not consider 10% generous. He considered 10% baseline. And in the New Testament, it would seem strange to me if that God were to suddenly consider 2% generous. 
because I don't think he's lowered it to zero. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And if our attitude is, the Lord should just be pleased with whatever I give him. Look how generous I am. I'm not sure the Lord considers that generosity. This is not law. This is thinking about the character of God. The, the New Testament directive is that we give cheerfully and that we give generously. There's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correspondence between a person's giving uh, and their abundance in life in their giving. But I've seen it a lot. I've seen it a lot. Not, not that people who give generously become millionaires, but that people who give generously worry less about money and have what they need and often more than they need. And the emphasis there is not on individual prosperity. It's on communal prosperity. It's on the good of the church and the ability of the church to help one another. That you and the promise, I will pour out on you, is plural. I will pour out on you, my people. Not necessarily I will pour out on you, Renee, though he does both. John, <laughs> I told you it's going to be yours. Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Old Testament ends... The part I made John skip is the, the righteous, the people who feared the Lord, decided to pay attention, return to God's word and fear the Lord. And then these people, the arrogant, the evildoers, and it's that distinction again, righteous and unrighteous, and two different outcomes for the righteous and the unrighteous, and that this great day of the Lord will be about that separating, about that outcome. And what we are to do is to remember the law of my servant Moses. We're to return to the word of the Lord. But we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't return to the word of the Lord. We are terrible at it. We're really, really selfish. We are really, really idolaters. How in the world will the righteous persevere as the righteous, if what it takes is returning to the word of the Lord, which we cannot do. It will take an act of God. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. Not Elijah, Elijah, the new Elijah. They don't know yet that the greater, doesn't the New Testament say that? The one who is greater than Elijah will come, and he is the only way that the righteous will ever be righteous. But he'll do this. And it's not that he'll do it by taking away everything God said before. It's that he'll make us righteous. We will get his righteousness imputed so that we can persevere. And because we have that righteousness imputed, we actually will walk with Christ and live more righteously. Not perfectly. Perfecting of the saints until the day of his coming. But noticeably, noticeably holy and more holy over time.
the longer and the closer we walk with Christ until the day of glory. And that's how the New Testament ends. Look for Elijah. Remember the law of Moses and look for Elijah. And so what is the next word? Not literally, but y'all know what I mean in a minute. What is the next word of the Bible? John the Baptist saying, Behold, here he comes. The one that Malachi told us to wait for. Here he comes. And what does Jesus bring? The word. Because he is the word. You see all this? It's great. It's like you need both testaments or something. 